1: to the second series of the Core Curriculum, where different folks from the Christian Humanist Radio Network were reading through and discussing the Columbia University Humanities Reading List. Today we get to discuss Book 5 of Plato's Republic. So I'm super happy to note that with me today are Katie Grubbs and Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Katie is an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. They live in Texas with her husband and children. And Victoria is a PhD in English from Florida State University and lives in Woodstock, Georgia and married to Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist Network. And I am Christina Bieber Lake. I teach English at Wheaton College in Illinois. And the first thing that I want to say to everyone is that we are all English professors and not philosophers. So we are enjoying a good time talking about Plato from, I would say, a rhetorically savvy perspective. Let's put it that way. So I wanted to uh, start out just giving with a question, actually, about how we first encountered Plato. I think that's where I wanted to start. So anybody want to talk about how they first encountered Plato? It's an all-female group, and we're reading a text that deals with the um, women in the Republic. So I thought it would be cool to ask that question. Who wants to start?
0: Um, I can start. I know that I read at least two books of the Republic in high school. I believe we read uh, book one and book eight. I know that we read book eight because we had to do um, an assignment where we talked about how the four or five types of societies that appear in book eight, we had to write sort of 21st century parallels to those things. Um, which is a, a pretty in depth high school assignment. It so, is. Uh, pr- props to that teacher. I do not remember who it was. Sorry about that. Um, so, I, I did that in high school, and then um, in undergrad, I remember reading book 10 and yelling about the poets not being allowed in the Republic. Yes. Um,
1: That's the requisite uh, thing for us all to say, right? That's our experience with Plato, right there.
0: <laughs> right, but I mean, now looking back, I, I'm not sure I, I want to be in mm-hmm. the Republic. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of of the way this uh, the, the values of this society. I think they're they're pretty foreign to uh, to my 21st century values. Um, and the only other educational experience I had is. Um, I don't remember what books of the Republic, but some books of the Republic came up in this class I did in grad school on um, Renaissance reading, which was we read people whose ideas uh, were either read by people in the Renaissance or became prominent during the Renaissance. And I think we read, um, it must've been book two, the book about justice uh, alongside Thomas More's *Utopia* and excerpts from *The Tempest*. Mm. So that that is all of the interaction I have had with the Republic prior to uh, jumping into this
1: project. Mm-hmm. What about you, Katie? Victoria's got a lot more
2: than I than I have. Um, I know that I um, I know that I encountered Plato first. I think as a freshman when I was at Barry College, we didn't read as extensively of the pure Plato text because when I, when I did my philosophy class at Berry, it was like some kind of honors course and it was philosophy and literature. So we were taking our philosophical texts and putting them alongside, um, some kind of literary texts with the result that I remember very little of the philosophy (laughs) because I'm a lit person. Um, I do remember learning about and kind of um, taking in um, the, the whole allegory of the cave idea. That was the thing that I took away, which I mean, if I was going to bring one thing away, that was a good thing to remember because it's super important. Um, But beyond that, I don't, I don't remember really doing any more with it as an undergrad And I encounter it sometimes now as a college professor at HBU because we do um, have kind of a great works um, approach with our teaching of literature, and it appears in some of our classes now. um, I in the classes that I teach, we tend to do usually we end up um, doing Aristotle instead of Plato, Um, and so I have a little more experience with Aristotle. But um, but yeah, so I I came to the Republic as. Um, at least this part of the Republic is a complete novice. I had not read book five before um, I was preparing to talk about it tonight. So I'm definitely
1: going to be, I, I, I have very fresh eyes, I guess. <laughs> I
0: hadn't read book five before either. So don't feel bad.
1: Fresh eyes. That's really great. You know, you never know what you're, what insights you're going to get when you encounter something for the first time. So I think that's great. Um, I of course read parts of it as an undergraduate as well. Um, I was so philosophically unsophisticated as an undergraduate. So I don't think I got anything from it at that point, not even the allegory of the cave. Um, But in grad school, I definitely returned to it, read the entire Republic. I took a lot of philosophy classes actually in graduate school. And part of that was because the philosophy department, um, the students in philosophy actually believed in truth, uh, whereas people in English did not. So I hung out a lot with the philosophers because they wanted to debate ideas rather than just kind of perform different readings, and uh, I was drawn to that. So, and then, of course, I've taught sections of it at various times, including our first-year seminar at Wheaton. Um, I've taught some of the Republic books, 1, 2, and 3, just very recently, Um And then, of course, the famous Allegory of the Cave, which I've done a lot of thinking about and working on in my career. And then the scene that Victoria mentioned about the the poets being thrown out of the Republic and, and that always comes up in classes in literature. So it's an important issue that I'm sure we'll get back to as we move forward. So I thought I would just start with a little bit, just minimal context, just to remind our listeners where we are In the Republic, you have heard a few episodes already, um, so I'm not going to say much. It's just obviously his most famous work, the most well-known of an established career. And it's really about justice. I think the more I teach the Republic, the more I realize that um, Plato's concern is with truth and goodness, but it kind of comes back to justice. What's the highest good for the Republic? Um, But what I found in teaching it is that the definition of justice is not very simple um, in the Republic, and it's also a little bit weird um, on modern ears. And I think the Republic that is the most just for Plato is going to be the one that's going to be the happiest. And so the way that an ideal state is achieved, uh, I think comes down to everyone being in their proper place, which is why book five is so interesting because it's dealing with the question of women. So for Plato, you've got the philosopher kings, of course, at the top. And the reason why they are the kings is because they're ruled by reason. And then pretty much everybody else and however you want to divide that, it's debatable, is below them, with the lowest being pretty much the masses who are ruled by their appetites. So I think that's an interesting to th- thing to think about this idea of order hierarchy um, in a republic coming into the issue of, of how we deal with women. So I wanted to start, um, what surprised you about reading this section, since you both mentioned this is new, this particular section is new to you. And I'm also curious what translation you're using, and if you have anything to say about that. My
2: translation is a pretty old one. And, it, and, and I, it's the one we had around the house. So um, the one that I'm reading is by Guy Benjamin Jowett. Um, it's very old. I think it was originally translated in the 50s. Um, I also
0: have that translation, though I thought it was pronounced Jowett.
2: It might be. It really might be. Um, and David has um, some volumes of – this is included in one of the Britannica Library. And so this is a part of a big volume about, about Plato. Um, one thing that surprised me, but again, this is because I'm almost a complete novice when it comes to the dialogues, is the degree to which um, the the degree to which uh, Socrates keeps trying to evade all the time, like or he will say that he's going to talk about something, and then um his interlocutors will say, "Well, hold on, now, we want to ask you a question about this." And he'll say, "Man, I didn't want to talk about that. <sighs> okay, fine, I guess I'm gonna have to address that. I was hoping to avoid that. <laughs> Um, And I didn't expect I didn't expect that because it's been so long since I read Plato. And, you know, when I think about the dialogues, for whatever reason, I had to think of them as very formal. But the ways that they speak with each other and, and a lot of the, the phrasing and a lot of the, the logic is very formal. But um, the ways that they talk to each other sound as if they are actually friends. And I thought that was that was kind of fun. And that was a fun surprise because I wasn't expecting that. As far as, um, as far as what is here, and I don't know how much we want to get into this now because we're going to talk about more later, but I actually was fairly surprised about some of the things that he said about women, mm-hmm. um, particularly when weighed, about, when weighed against other things that he also
1: said about women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we definitely um, will get into that.
2: Yeah,
0: I agree. I, I think we probably were surprised by similar things, but I'm interested <laughs> to get to that.
1: So how about you, Victoria? What was surprising to you?
0: Well, just kind of practically... Uh, the editions of The Republic that I read in high school and college were set on the page like drama. So there were speaker hmm. names and colons and then dialogue. Oh. And so when I saw this edition, which I we got um, – There were two different editions from the used bookstore we went to because all of our books are still in storage. Um, So we just got the two different editions that we could find cheaply. And when I got this one, I thought, oh, no, I'm never going to know who's speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, But actually, it's not that difficult because it really doesn't like – if anything of substance is happening, that's almost always Socrates, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and if and if someone is interrupting him, it's someone else, and it doesn't super matter who the someone else is. Um, and if it's really obnoxious, it's Glaucon, <laughs> and yeah. that is
1: what
0: I, and that is what I know. Uh, so I was I was surprised at how much I didn't need um, who was talking, uh, but in in terms of. The surprising stuff about the the nature of women, um, I did not expect the whole like communal marriage thing.
2: That mm-hmm. that was a,
0: a big blindside <laughs> for me. Like, wait, I actually I um do most of our reading in our den, and I actually like stopped reading, put the book down, went into the other room, and got Michael and said, "Wait, wait, wait." Is he talking about what I think he's yep. talking about?
1: Yep.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. he is. So uh, yeah, I did not uh, did not expect
1: that at all. It's so funny because I when I was reading it, and I had read this section a long time ago in grad school, like twenty years ago, and I don't re- I did not remember that at all. And I first thought that's got to be ironic, and then I realized no, it's not. <laughs> and and it just really floored me. So uh, I, I'm here I mean, I'm with you.
0: It it actually makes sense given how highly this society values unity and the greater Correct. good. I mean, I, I, that tracks with, with everything else, but it's so, um, so foreign from our conception of individual families and, and sort of the, the way we structure things that it, it really kind of came out of nowhere for me.
2: When I read it, when I read it, I, I told David later, I said that my, my first thought when I read that was, that you know, it doesn't sound crazy like you said, Victoria. Based on what he's valuing, but for it to be presented as an ideal, I said he must not have been around people. I mean, cause, <laughs> like, or, or 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 at least not around parents and their children. Maybe I don't. You know that that because the way that he talks about, like I know, I just remember him talking about. You know, oh, and the women, they can bring the children to them if they need to nurse, but make sure they don't know which baby they're nursing, like if it's their baby or not. And, um, and don't worry, you know, none of these women are going to have to get up in the middle of the night and feed their own babies. The nurses can handle that. Mm-hmm. And like 5% of me said, I mean, no night feedings would be great.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: then he says, see, their life, these mothers, their lives are going to be free and easy. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm sure every mother whose child's been taken away from her and put in a pen—that's uh, how my—that's how he translates it, a pen or a yes. fold. You know, they're in the fold. You know, I'm sure that she's thinking, man, it's so great I don't have to wake up in the middle of the night to feed my baby. It was just funny. Um, it, you know, reading it as a as a as a mother, I'm thinking. Yes. Socrates, go home. You're drunk. Like, yeah. this, this would never work. But, I mean, again, he says we're going to pass by the possibility of this, and we're just going to talk about it as a pure hypothetical. So, um, I mean, at least they made, you know, whichever guy, interlocutor, made the point that, you know, this probably wouldn't work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. When I was when I was talking about it with David this afternoon, he he was saying that there are some people, some scholars who want to take all of this as also allegorical and it's also really talking about the nature of the just soul um which i is a better way i mean i kind of like that way of thinking about it better because if i try to think about it seriously as he's seriously positing this as his ideal society then i'm thinking this would never ever ever work (laughs) so Mm -hmm. um you know i think that that maybe helps to um i don't know it makes it a little more understandable but yeah that victoria right that was the biggest that was the biggest shock um was that particular um, idea, I guess, or that particular um, method of organizing things? And I t- what I what I said to David when he said some people, a lot of people think it's allegorical. What I said is, it's interesting to me if it is an allegory, though, that he got so in depth into the minutiae of, and this is how these babies are going to be nursed, and this is how we're going to do this and like, scenario, and this, this scenario. is how we
0: avoid the incest
1: taboo, and like. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's so detailed and so thought out to be an allegory to me. Well, but. an
1: allegory it strikes me as probably the, an imprecise word because what really it comes down to is that the individual, according to Plato, should be organized or ordered in the same way that the Republic is. So I don't know if you would really call that an allegory, but it'd be more like... It's
0: like, like a, a microcosm. A
1: microcosm, yes. And so it can be quite literally the case that he means for women to do this in this particular way um, but still be in a sense um, kind of idealized but I but I don't I I don't know if I would use the word allegory but as you said David mentioned that it's it's a debate right like people don't know um,
2: and I could see where I mean if, if I was going to th- try to think of it that way then I would say that this probably this whole thing this kind of eugenic impulse of trying to make sure that the best couples get together mm-hmm. to have superior sons. If that's supposed to say something about the soul, then maybe it's some way of talking about how you should take care with what you, with what information or what, um, what influences you cause to, to allow entrance into your soul.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, certainly to, it does,
2: you know? Yeah. And, and, and yes. to use your, yes. And to use your reason to govern, you know, what, what things you let in and what things you keep out. So, I mean, I, on that, in that way, it makes sense. I could see where it could be scaled down to the individual mind, this idea of just simply trying to maintain a unified, wholesome, superior whole. I mean, I, I can get that. Um, but it, it, in, in, on another level, it's just, it's hard to get past the very practical details given about this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know. Well, that, yeah,
1: go ahead. That,
0: that sounds great. But also, I'm not going to let us pass the, you said, sort of eugenics i i think it's more than sort of
1: it's Um, it's eugenics
0: (laughs) well yeah he says and we're going to hide away or kill the disabled babies
1: yes i
0: know and And at at that point i was like oh i'm real
1: out of this which is what ancient greeks did i mean it was it was common in ancient greece um in certain uh city states more than others but yeah and so I think yeah, that is straight on eugenics. And and that is interesting. And it goes back to actually the question that I'd wanted to ask, you know, with Plato's, you know, obvious privileging of reason over anything else, what he calls in my translation, which is Sterling and Scott from the eighties, which he calls spirit and appetite. I don't know how those words are translated for you guys, but he clearly is privileging reason over those two things. So does that serve women? Well, um, does it, it does it serve in what ways does it serve women? Well, and in what ways does it serve us poorly? I guess is a good way to ask. You could definitely say it's, it does, it serves disabled people quite poorly, right? Because most things do, most things do, but you have no, you know, according to Plato, this, this capacity has been lessened. So we might as well just leave you out in the landscape and, you know, Forget about you, that kind of thing. Sure, but just ab- let me
2: freeze to death. It's fine. Yes,
1: just let you freeze to death, right?
2: <laughs> so, that's one reason that I. That's one reason I yeah. took it seriously when he's when he's throwing out all this stuff is because, and that's you know, is that I wasn't thinking this as an allegory because I knew they did do it. Yes, they did. They do did it. expose the babies. I mean, it was not so. It's not crazy. It's not like some kind of swifty and modest proposal, like to suggest that because they did it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as how it serves women, I. It's interesting, one of the things that surprised me about Book five is when he he makes a point of saying that he feels like the women should also be guardians with the men mm-hmm. um, because gifts are all all different people can have gifts. Mm-hmm. right. So it's not as if men, only men can hold certain gifts and only women. Um, and it, but it's like this weird mix of good and bad because he says, no, no, women should should be serving as guardians too because they also can have these gifts. but then but then we're all going to agree that that they're not as good at any of it. Um, but they can inferior. have inferior. He uses the inferior. Word, yes, yes, inferior. So constitutional inferiority, but still women can do these things with the men. So it's like a weird it's like it's like a weird step forward because he's not saying, you know, none of I mean, he's saying these women should go into the battle with the men. They should be exercising out here with the men and doing naked, all these things naked yeah. naked. He's you know, not.
0: He's not Aristotle. He's not saying women are animals the way that Aristotle does. Correct.
2: No, no. But but the thing is, though, all of this, though, really is the way that he talks about it. All of this mainly seems in service of making sure that these male guardians have fit companions, so yeah, they can absolutely. Be- produce superior children. It's not because women are do this by right or something. You know, it's about um, it's about making sure the men have fit companions. Is and so it's still not.
1: Um, so it goes back to eugenics at some level yeah it's uh, it's about
0: maintaining order right mm -hmm. like the the best people need to go with the best people because if you want your society to be unified the worst thing you can do is step out of your defined place
1: Mm -hmm. yep
0: so so yeah it's it's about maintaining order through pairing the right people off
2: so no, it's 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 very it's really it's very sad because I was what I, what's something I wrote down in my notes is that this this is an order that if put into practice would would um, be uh, would a disservice to everyone because in the service of this goal of unity, he's he's positing a world in which no one has anything that is theirs. That's what he says. He says discord comes from saying this is mine. Mm-hmm. Therefore, no one's going to know who their children are. So, yeah, you might be giving these these male guardians and female guardians really awesome um, people to get it on with and then have these really superior babies, but no one knows who's, who's, who their family is. And so he thinks but their as,
0: family is the state and that is good.
2: Uh,
0: yeah. I mean, right. I like I, I'm with you. I agree with you. Like this is completely uh, yeah. foreign to the way that I, as me see the world, <laughs> but we, but we can't think that way. Right. We need to try. Yeah. We it's need to true. try to think in their values at least a little bit.
2: No, I know. I know. And, and, and I think that, and, and from his point of view, it's perfectly consistent. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, because that's the ultimate good is unity. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's so he says, you know, everyone will think of everyone else as family because they could be their biological family, but they're all, they're thinking of everyone as their, as their family, you know, and, and it's interesting to me too, how much he's, I don't know, there are a couple of different times in this book and maybe, I don't know, you guys can tell me if he talks about it more in other books, but he, he talks a couple of times in this book about the truth and, you know, trying to get at the truth or, you know, in some way, prizing the truth. But then so much of this order, this unity and order, this orderly setup is based on falsehood. Because he says, you know, we're going to make, to make sure the good people get together, we're going we're gonna to only put the good people together, but we're going to have a lottery so that, um, all the other people who aren't so great think that they just it was their bad luck that they didn't get a really awesome person. it's It's not real you know i mean it's it's a it's a kind of a it, it appears to be a random chance but it's not or you know we're going to i mean to do this you would have to hide and and conceal whose child is whose child and so much of it feels based on something that's not the truth so it's just interesting to to think about or to opine about the truth but then you know to create your perfect unified society have to conceal so much of the truth
0: that that is to me where things get Like this must be an ideal and could not be enacted because you would have to do some like serious big brother level observation to to know who's compatible to understand which class of people is with which other class of people. Like, how do you practically do that?
2: To be honest, it makes me think of some, it, it makes me feel like we could just write all this up into some kind of YA post-apocalyptic novel, and it would sell, like, tomorrow. Um, it sounds they, so they, much they, like that.
0: Uh, hot take, not hot take, completely cold take, The Giver by Lois Lowry is Platonist.
2: Okay, I, I could see that, I because mean, that's what I was thinking, too, when I was reading this. I thought, where have I heard this before?
1: Well, there are oh, other feminist, actually, utopias that look similar to this. Uh, novels. <clears throat> and I was trying to remember the name of the novel, but I think it's by Marge Piercy. Um, oh, yeah. I read that. Yeah. What's
0: it called? Yeah. I love her.
1: Yeah, she's great. And this and this is pretty much a description of what happens. Like the, the community shares all of the responsibilities for the children. And there's none of this kind of emotional attachment, if I'm remembering this correctly. Um, it, is that what you remember, Victoria, about it? Uh, Yeah, that
0: sounds right. Though I read it a really long time ago. I I
1: read it a long time ago, too, and that's why I can't remember the title. But um, the thing that interested me about that with regard to Plato is, first of all, how much of that she got sort of from Plato is interesting. But also the move from the feminist perspective of elevating reason over things like familial attachment is a really interesting move right? Because typically, what feminists will say is stop denigrating these quote unquote feminine virtues, like stop denigrating the emotions, stop denigrating this. Uh, And I'm not saying all feminists are alike on this, but one that's one way to go. But the way that Marge Piercy is going is more along the lines of good, let's elevate reason. And let's take the burden off of women that comes from this kind of excessive familial attachment. What do you guys think about that?
0: Like um, Shulamith Firestone. That's what Shulamith Firestone says. Um, Oh, what is that text? It comes out in the early 70s, and she essentially hypothesizes test tube babies and says um, that if women were freed from the physical strain of of gestation and that we Mm -hmm. could... Um, have our babies outside of our bodies and then have essentially like full-time state-sanctioned daycare mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that it would be much easier to be a person and also have a family. So I, that seems very similar to yeah and, um, and what this you're was saying written, from
1: the, and, the it, and this was written in the 70s as well. I'm pretty sure, late 70s, that this novel by Marge Piercy. So there was this interesting focus on that issue. Um, But to take out the kind of quote unquote, traditionally feminine kind of virtues of familial attachment and elevate state responsibility is a platonic move at some level. I'm just realizing.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's true. You know, he's saying that if someone has an unauthorized child, that that child is a bastard of the state. He says uncert my and my translation it says uncertified and unconsecrated, mm-hmm. and that I mean and that and that he says that's true if if you have a person who is um, not one of the guardians has a child. Um, But also if one of these guardians has a child when they're not in the right age range, even Mm -hmm. if they have a a child before they're considered old enough to be of prime age. So there's that not total control, not just we're going to make sure you're with the right people, but also we're going to make sure that you're exact right time in your life. Um, But I was thinking when you were talking too, though, that this, it it does feel similar. But the one way that this is very different from that kind of test tube baby, you know, freedom from gestation thing is that um, for Plato's thing to work where you have, you know, these mothers who are guardian mothers who are freed from having to nurse their own children and having to raise their own children because the children are in the pen, whatever, somebody's body's having to pay for that. Mm-hmm. because there's a wet nurse over there who's having to feed these babies. Like, so it's you, you, sure. at least, you know, in, in Plato's context, you cannot, f- you cannot free the the child rearing or whatever. You can't free it from the body. I mean, because they yes. didn't have test tube babies, but I mean, somebody's yeah. body is paying for that child. Yeah. And that's the and, lower
1: classes, right? The masses yeah. that, of that, that should yes. be serving everybody else. And that is an Absolutely. important I mean, difference.
0: You know, that's still happening now, even, when we value the individual, I mean, look at, uh, women like Kim Kardashian who are paying surrogates to carry their children. Yes. Yes. You know, that woman yeah. is n- not as rich as Kim Kardashian and that's why she's getting paid to have somebody else's babies.
1: <laughs> right. And and this is also related to eugenics and the whole idea of I get to choose, you know, what my offspring is going to look like. And I mean, these are all connected and have a piece and and so I, I think that leads us to kind of the interesting question of what parts of this kind of vision do we want to keep and what do we want to throw away? I mean, that's the way I'm always putting it toward my, my students, you know. Um, I was stunned by how he really did leave an opening for women to be philosopher kings. And I agree with you guys that it was in service of more about mating and, and eugenics, but he does allow if women have those gifts to do that. And I was surprised um and
0: and what I loved the most and didn't expect is that in saying that um, he says, uh, "If women are to have the same duties as men, then they must have the same nurture and education right, then women must be taught music and gymnastic and also the art of war which they must practice like the men
1: yeah and i don't and, I don't think that's ironic or
0: no and then there's there's some debate over whether women should be in the military the way that men are, um, after he says that, but mostly they say, no, uh, women should be given the same educational opportunities because as Katie said previously, um, people have different aptitudes and then they extend it to children too. They say, don't center your children. Don't, uh, I'm sorry. Don't, uh, shelter your children too much let them see the world and let them see if i can find it he basically says give your children good leaders and let them follow them Mm -hmm. but don't uh but don't keep them from things that are scary
2: yeah he says they should take them out to watch the war because that's what they're going to have to do when they get when they get grown up um, and I thought that was really interesting because then his interlocutors are concerned about their safety and he says, well, that's why that, you know, they're going to have experienced leaders watching over them and they should all be on horseback and they should all be taught how to ride so they can flee.
0: Yeah, it, here we it's go. It's dangerous. Yeah. I, ha- I have the passage. Um, go ahead. Uh, then again, against such chances the children must be at once furnished with wings in order that in the hour of need, they may fly away and escape. I mean that we must mount them on horses in their earliest youth. And when they have learnt to ride, take them on horseback to see war and horses must not be spirited and warlike, but the most tractable and yet the swiftest that can be had in this way, they will get an excellent view of what is hereafter to be their own business. And if there is danger, they have only to follow their eldest leaders and escape.
1: Hmm. That's very interesting.
2: I, I think that that makes so much sense when you think about, again, the, the end of all of this is to create this kind of, um, perfect unified state. And that makes sense to me too, why he would not exclude the women from certain positions. So the part that I I finally found the part I was going to mention before it's, he says there is nothing peculiar in the constitution of women, which would affect them in the administration of the state. Yes. Right. So he's saying there's not anything that makes a woman unfit. Um, but if you're, if your whole point is to create a perfect unified society that functions at utmost, um, Capacity and happiness and peace for everyone. Then you you can't waste talent. And, and he, if you have yes. and, and, and he believes that men and women can both have these different gifts and talents. So if you have women with these talents to do certain parts to fight and battle or you know whatever he is he's talking about, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't serve the state. That's to right. Exclude them purely b- because of their gender and from I think serving in certain areas
1: that is pretty unusual for an ancient text because he's not making an argument based on nature that women are inherently inferior, can't learn these skills, you know, where you might see an Aristotle, as Victoria pointed out. Instead, he's saying, it, women who have these qualities must be chosen to live and rule, right? That's what he's saying. So if you've got these qualities, now, he doesn't see that there's a reason why not many of them have it, right? Um, because they're, what are they good at? Um, weaving baking cakes and boiling vegetables is what it says in my translation uh, but our it,
2: 1950s translation yeah. says weaving pancakes <laughs> and jam maybe victoria <laughs> i think pancakes and jam i gotta find it i was laughing so hard i'm thinking I, surely I, the ancient greek is not pancakes come on i, I laughed very hard I, I don't
0: remember pancakes, but I definitely wrote "women be cooking."
1: Women be cooking
0: next <laughs> to my. Uh, I can't find where I wrote that.
1: You know, so so the men are better at everything um, than women are. But these, but boiling vegetables, baking cakes, and weaving. Um... The art of
2: weaving, the management of pancakes, and preserves.
1: <laughs> yes, there That's you what go. What it says. Okay, <laughs> I got boiling Do you think vegetables. Do you
2: think he went with
0: pancakes because of the alliteration with preserves? It's
1: entirely possible. Well, then why do I have boiling vegetables? Oh, I I have alliteration too. Weaving, well, not weaving, but baking cakes and boiling vegetables. So there you go. But but anyway, so unsurprisingly, if that's all they're taught to do, that's all their skills are going to be. But my point is that Plato does not make an argument just because you're born a woman, you're therefore not going to have the ability
2: Yes, right. absolutely, and and, I, and I, I, that was surprising to me. Very that was surprising the thing, in his attitude toward women. That was the thing that was that that I did not expect to find in this text. I didn't. Yeah, either. I was I was very
0: pleasantly surprised by that. Though, can we, since we've mentioned being surprised by the sort of hidden progressivism of that idea, can we talk about the fact that they also say? okay, yes, but women are still naturally inferior. Like, I don't understand how those two things work together
1: well where where my point is where is he saying they are naturally inferior as maybe opposed not to, naturally yeah see no, well, i it's, think it's an important um, difference where does
2: the inferior part it's, it's right below the pancakes and preserves yeah. he mm-hmm. says um they're just he less says, good
1: at all these things
2: you are quite right he replied in maintaining the general the general inferiority of the female sex although many women are in many things superior to many men yet on the whole what you say is true uh, um, so it's, it, I mean, yeah, like Christina says, it's hard to tell if he means by nature or if he just means that generally we feel like we're observing that more, you know, that women aren't great at some of these things. Cause it's right below that though, where he says, and if so, my friend, I said, there is no special faculty of administration in a state which a woman has because she's a woman or which a man has by virtue of his sex, but the gifts of nature are alike diffused in both.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty um, progressive. Let's but, face but it. He,
2: but then okay then he says I understand all, now I think but Victoria but right below that then he says again all the pursuits of men are the pursuits of women also but in all of them a woman is inferior to a man
0: okay so that is that is the line where I got confused mm-hmm. the but in all of them a woman is inferior but like you just said <laughs> that the opportunities should be the same so like how how is that statement not meant to be read as natural inferiority if in all of them a woman is inferior
1: i, I see what you're saying yeah i read it, it, it as go ahead
2: i was just gonna say because you're right it doesn't make sense if he's saying there's no special gifts of administration given to a woman because she's a woman or to a man because he's a man the gifts of nature are given alike to all but but the women are less good <laughs> i mean it's it's almost like he's saying all the gifts are in all the people but the versions in the men are just are better It's it it is. It's strange. I mean, because it it feels it sounds like a complete contradiction to say, oh, there's no special goodness in men because they're men or in women because they're women. But the women aren't as good. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Christina?
1: I think that it's because without him recognizing this, they haven't been given the opportunity right to develop those things, though they could. He would never make that argument. Right. He is. It's almost like an observation. The men are just better at this. I don't think he's saying that they're because they're men, they're better at this. If that makes, I see if, what you're saying. Yeah, if that's I, even permissible,
0: I see what you're saying. So he's making an equity argument rather than an equality argument. Yes, but wouldn't use those terms.
1: Right, right. That's that's okay. a good way to put it. I mean, that's the way I read it. I could be reading it wrong, and we just we certainly have different translations that lead us to different things. But he clearly does say if women have these qualities, and in fact, those women who do have these qualities. As as you said, Katie, it would be a waste of their talents if we didn't put them in, right? We've got to insert them into leadership if they have these qualities. And and that's kind of what made me want to ask the question about how this is similar and different from the church and the way that the church has viewed women, and, and particularly Aquinas taking from Aristotle, right? Um, and it, it just, to me, is all connected because I feel Plato, or I hear Plato saying, um, if you've got the talents, who cares what your gender is, right?
2: It is. It's particularly interesting given the the devotion to Plato that you find in so many Christian circles. Um, I mean, and some of them, complementarian circles too. So yeah, it is interesting to to see kind of how he puts it because on the one hand, I feel like I mean, it's a no-brainer to see how this is playing out in egalitarian churches. I've, but I feel like in complementarian churches, you hear all the time, well, not in the ones that are really patriarchy with just a different name on them, but you hear all the time this affirmation that the gifts are given, in this case, we would call them spiritual gifts, are given to all, to men and women mm-hmm. alike. That affirmation of Plato's is there, but then, then, it, but then, then that's where the similarity ends, because then... Right then, certain scriptures are going to come in. People are going to take certain scriptures and go. But these gifts should be used. Certain gifts, like preaching or you know whatever, should be used in different ways. Right. So it's different expressions of the same
1: gifts. Mm-hmm. That's
2: that's the direction it's going to go in a complementarian church. Um, but I do think that there, I, I, in some ways, I think that even that is a kind of progress because I think there were definitely times past in the complementarian church and there may be times present in some churches where it, it's not it's not totally just taken for granted that all that women and men can all have all the gifts and that women can be just as capable of doing all these things as men i think that that is that that the fact that that's a mundane thing that you hear all the time in a lot of complementarian churches now is recent i feel like um because yeah I think it long totally time, is yeah, it's it's new. I, it, I'm not gonna act like it's been there the whole time. It has not been there the whole time. Um, and, but I think, and in the past, you might have heard some people say, "Well, men, w- women just aren't as good at this." That like kind of that observational. Well, we just see that you know the women they just don't do as good of a job. And you know, and then then you one would say, "Okay, but have they been given the opportunity to do so?" Like you you know, like um you guys were talking about with Plato's women. You know they um just not having the chance to develop those talents. Um, And I think that is something that still needs to happen in, at least in in our complementarian sphere of that's, that's one of the, one of the things that still is not happening is women being actively pursued to use their gifts in the church in all the ways that um, are happening in those churches. Because a lot of times what will happen is you'll hear people say, well, you know, because our theology precludes a woman preaching, from the pulpit, we don't need to then seek out women who are, who are gifted in the area of teaching and promote their gifts because what's the point, right? But that's, and that is a, a deep wrong to to not affirm the gifts of every woman, regardless of the theology that's guarding your church is deeply wrong to me, but I'm getting off. We're not talking about Plato anymore. So, um, I think that it is interesting to see how some of the things he's saying are tracking in the church. Um, but I think that he's not. Um, I don't know. You guys go ahead. I don't know. If, I don't know what else I want to say. My voice is getting a little tired. I,
0: I think you made a really interesting point about the, the kind of Venn diagram between complementarian churches and great books programs and, and what that might look like enacted. I wonder who, um, who we could ask about that. I does John Mark Reynolds listen to this show? John um, Mark. I mean, <laughs> John I Mark
2: you. if you're listening. <laughs> me. I um I, to, um I go to book club at his house. I could maybe um ask next time. I don't usually don't I don't see him when I'm there. But it is true. I mean it, it, it yeah, there's so much overlap there. And yeah, so I would be really right interested
0: to see. You're right that this is a group of people that probably reads more plato than certain other groups of people and i i would be interested to know if inside that community which i am not a direct part of if this conversation happens Mm -hmm. in terms of like plato says this view about women and their talents and you know what do we think about that theologically? I
2: just, I,
0: and that is not in any way an accusation. I just, I'm, that is interesting to me. And I would like to know if that conversation occurs.
2: And I I think it probably does, but I think it probably is happening in the, the discourses and in the sphere of academia rather than in the church. So often I would bet that there are fewer women involved in those conversations. Because it at least in just purely observationally, what I've noticed a lot I feel like there are more men in great books programs than there are women. I don't know why that is. I just think that that's kind of what I've observed. That's true. Having been around a couple of programs. And so if if it's happening in those academic spheres, then um it may or may not be translating into discussions of and also I mean, you know, they're not necessarily in class gonna be talking about how does this play out in the local church unless they're, you know, literally in a Bible college. Um and I know a lot of those conversations at HBU are happening, they are happening in our regular English classes, but a lot more of them are happening in the Honors College. And um, and they do things totally differently there. So I'm not totally sure how those conversations are playing out. And the thing interesting thing about HBU, though, is we, we're great books focused. And so you do have complementarians. And there are complementarians on campus who are doing that stuff. But also, it's super broadly ecumenical in terms of the faculty. So we have people on campus teaching who are you know, Protestant evangelical, but we also have people who are, you know, Orthodox Catholic. Um, and like, I'm just thinking about off the top of my head. I mean, you know, Methodist, I mean, there's, there's like a million different. So it, it's, it's, it's equally likely at least in our great books program that students would be taught Plato by an egalitarian professor as, as a complementary professor, even mm. though we're a Baptist university attached to the Southern or, uh, the Southern Baptist convention. Mm.
1: What's interesting to me is how Plato, you know, we know he elevates reason above every other faculty. And there's nothing from Plato that would lead you to conclude that men are the rational animals and women are emotional, right? And therefore, we need to make sure that only men get trusted with the, the rational things involved in decision-making and teaching other people and la-di-da. And women should just, you know, be uh on the guard, lest you be deceived, right? The kind of basic um women are more susceptible to deception kind of idea, and men are the ones who should with their reason rule you don't get that o- from Plato. or like a
0: like a proto cartesian split yes, like I was yeah. I was waiting for that to happen I
1: was too and, mm-hmm. it,
0: and it never came, and I was like, wow,
1: okay. because women are easy targets, right for that, like in the sense of oh, they're the embodied material. Materiality. I mean, this is this goes. You know, Simone de Beauvoir talks about this. All feminists have talked about how much this Though, has been carried forward.
0: Plato does say in Book, um, eight. Yes, in Book eight, when he's talking about the four types of societies, and he's talking about the um, the timarchy, timarchy. I don't know how to pronounce that I word. Neither. Um But he says that those um, those men are downwardly mobile. They, um, they stay out of their place and their societies degrade because those young men listen to their mothers too much.
1: <laughs>
0: so, uh, I mean, yes, there are some progressive things here, but I'm, I'm not going to let Plato off scot-free. Oh,
1: oh, I, I, I would be the last one to let Plato off scot-free. I'm just still kind of astonished because not only is he allowing them to have reason, Right just being a woman doesn't preclude you having reason and being able to be a garden that's been established, but that he's also not letting their bodies get in the way necessarily of them doing naked military exercises.
2: I was about to crack up when he was talking about how, for all of these reasons, no one needs to laugh at the women yes. if they strip and exercise naked. And I'm <laughs> thinking, I'm pretty sure these guys are not going to be laughing. Or at the,
0: <laughs> or I'm the old sure that people. People. he said, yeah, I know the old people too. I thought, Oh, that's nice.
2: I know. I love, you know, he said, you know, well, and I was about to get mad at him because he said, obviously, if these old ladies are out there exercising naked, everybody's going to be like, ah, but then he said, like the old men who (laughs) were exercising down at the gymnasium all the time. I just thought it was interesting that he, it was, it was a very, um, kind of unsexual way to talk about that, to say, now to make sure you don't laugh, don't laugh at these women when they're out out there exercising naked. Mm -hmm. Um, they're just doing their part, guys. Um. I was thinking too, um, Victoria. The one other thing, and you're absolutely right, Christina. I, and I was kind of waiting for that too, and I I was feeling a blankness when I didn't find it yeah. because I was expecting him to say, you know, um, say something about that about women, you know, not being fit uh, or not being as reasonable, right, as as mm-hmm. um, inclined to reason. But one thing I did notice, and it's it's just kind of happening the whole time, and I didn't pick up on it till I read it through again. Is one way that that There's this kind of subtle, um, I guess, inferiority with the women is that he keeps talking about the guardians, the men, having all the wives and children in common. Um, Mm -hmm. He doesn't say all of the grownups will have each other in common.
1: No, he says to
2: me that these women can can get together with whoever they want. No, but the men can as a reward. Like, yes, it's a.
0: It's like about
1: the spoils of war. It's the spoils too. Like of he, war. He, he he connects
2: it to to military
1: triumph and like and, and we saw more
2: wives in the and Elliot. Something, in the Elliot. About
1: mm-hmm.
2: something about possession, possessing women and children.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
2: he at least once he uses that verb as if you know they're a th- things that you have. Mm-hmm. And so that to me that was the thing that the most was just kind of subtly undercutting these other really interestingly great things that he's saying all the time in the background of my head, I'm hearing, possess the women and children, or, you know, I'm hearing these, this kind of have the women in common, share the women. Like it's, yeah. It, so, yeah, I
0: agree. I wanted to ask a this might be a weirdo off the wall question, but do we know how much um, like these communal cults that are about sharing women and children, like your Branch Davidians or your Manson family Do we know if they read Plato? Because
2: I feel like they could have.
1: I feel like they could have too, and I meant I thought of the same thing, Victoria. And it is kind of disturbing.
2: You know what else it makes me think of, Christina? But I only am thinking about it because the new season dropped this week. I don't know if you remember this, but in the in the show The Expanse on Amazon, the main guy, the guy main character, is supposed to have been raised this way. Oh, his, he's supposed to have been raised on a branch out of Montana or something with like six parents
1: mm-hmm. who all
2: raised him. To, but in in his case, he was literally the one kid, but he was raised by like six like polyamorous parents or something. And, and, and he and he was not he didn't know or he wasn't supposed to know which two were his actual parents and um but then there and there's like a whole plot point where um somebody goes to talk goes to find his mother to ask about him because they're interested in him and she is basically saying i wasn't supposed to treat him any different but i did because he was my son and it's like a whole thing Uh but anyway I, i i kept thinking about that when i was reading this too i was like it's like the guy on the expanse
1: it's so interesting isn't it because you're saying reason is the most important thing we don't want these attachments and um and yet Men get to have the women as kind of the spoils of war. And and so it doesn't do women any favors, I think is quite clear at the end of the day. uh, I'm always interested in that question of like, what seems to be doing women favors, but is actually not, right? Um, Yeah, that was the the question that motivated uh, Elizabeth Fox Genovese, my my advisor. And I think it's such a good one because... there are so many situations where it's like, well, it's, we're going to have all this, you know, common property rather than private property. And it's going to be better because it's going to alleviate you from the burdens of caring for your children or whatever. But it's it really better if the men can kind of just do whatever they want sexually. Right. No. <laughs> and why is that the case? Do you see what I'm after?
0: Yeah, sure. Or I think about like, um, in the Feminine Mystique, when Betty Friedan talks about the lies we are sold by the appliance companies. Yes. Like this, this is a thing that's going to make your life easier because it's going to save you time in doing chores. But she argues, what actually happens is the number of things that you have to do then expands to fill the time available. So you're sold this kind of false bill of convenience.
1: Yes, and that's an excellent point. It's such an excellent book, just as a side note, because of its critique of mass culture and the kind of ways that it manipulates women. But yeah, it's this—it's a similar point. What what might seem to be better for women really ends up serving the men. And and, and the situation where very quickly, and we haven't quite fully talked about this, but where it quickly goes to sort of like there will be no private property. I mean, it's almost like overnight it goes to that... Um, I I began to to think, boy, this is just really bad for women. It just degraded.
2: Well, and it it, it's interesting too because Plato says, you know, if no one knows who their own children are, then um, every all the parents will think of all the children as their children. Mm. Okay, that you know, whatever, that's fine. But the thing is, is it's almost like he talks about it like then that that will then somehow remove from all the parents. The 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 amount of because he says what makes people care really strongly is if something's theirs. But the thing is, if all the children are all of ours, then you would just regard if you're regarding every child as yours, then would you not still have all the strong strong parental feelings a parent might have, but towards all these children? And would you then want to put all those children on on horses and send them to battle? Maybe not. I, it's <laughs> that he, he seems to think that by taking the the idea, he seems to be thinking that by taking the possessiveness of parents over their own children away. That it's going to make the parents just cool with it, just uh-huh. cool with, you know, with giving it all to the state, cool with, you know, uh, at least for the mothers, cool with being the possessions of these men they've been assigned to, uh-huh. um, you know, cool with not getting to raise their own children, cool with watching all these children that they've been taught to all to think of all of them in this way as a parent towards to then see them taken into danger to learn to be better service But to give better service to the state, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just interesting how even if he seems to think you can take the embodiment out of it and it'll just be cool. But you can't take it in in, in his terms. If you have reason and spirit and then your baser desires, taking the body out of the equation is not just going to leave you left with pure reason because you still have the spirit there. Mm -hmm. You still have the emotions. You haven't taken away the emotions because you took away most of the embodied experiences of parenthood. It's just
1: interesting. It's very interesting because you just, yeah, there's just so many things that are going on there. I mean, if you have an attachment to your disabled child, for instance, you're supposed to just be like, well, for the good of the state, let's just leave that child on the side of the hill, um, and and just it seems like such a reasonable quote-unquote thing to do, but it ends up just being such a violation of of the embodiment of the woman, and so you can see why certain kind of feminist lines of reasoning would would be like well it's okay that women think of themselves as more embodied than men do because that's important that we have embodied emotions you can see how that that would be part of the resistance but it's not so simple how to resist these ideas i'm sorry i'm being a little bit confused but i've just there's so much ways that these things overlap and intersect with each other and gnosticism and the whole question of the mind over the body and all that well, and it makes
2: me think, too, um, you were talking, Victoria, about, you know, things or you guys were talking about things that might seem good for women, but in actuality aren't. But I was thinking about other things that sound good, but are, but are not or are actually terrible when, we, when they were talking about, you know, if, if any babies are born at the wrong time by the wrong age parents or if any babies have, you know, um, have any kind of disability, then we're just going to put them outside. It made me think of like um, the kind of proud, and this was like a couple of years ago, was this a year, maybe two ago when Iceland was like proudly announcing. Eradicating. That they'd yes. They'd eliminated. Yes. Erad- the word eradicate. Eradicated down syndrome. Yes. And I'm like, and, and I thought about that when I, the minute I read that in Plato, Me I thought, too. well, we know what that sounds like. I, you know, I mean, and it, and again, you know, from, their particular perspective they're thinking this is great and but you know it's just yeah i i i think it's it's it was just terrible i that, that was the genocide
0: as I- scientific advancement
1: mm-hmm. yes and we yes. saw it we saw it right in this text well we are we are coming up on time but i i wondered if you guys had any other final things you wanted to say before we we closed this one down i
2: just think i would like to say that um having It's interesting to me that we're reading a dialogue, and I feel like now having had a dialogue with you both about this, I feel like I understand it much better than I did before. So
1: here's to dialogues. Viva the dialectic. Way to go. Thanks.
0: Yeah, I agree. I learned a lot. Uh, I thank you for being able to talk this through with me. Um, and thank you for being made angry by some of the same things that I was made angry by. I'm glad I wasn't entirely off base there. This is a, a really fun conversation.
1: I agree. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. Um, this is the ChristianHumanist.org recording on the core curriculum. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.